All right. Thank you, Steve. Well, good morning to you. All right? Good. Yeah, let's get to it. No pleasantries. Grab your Bible. Uh, Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be. We're going to be in Luke 7 here. Uh, so grab your Bible. Go ahead and find it. want to give thanks for Addison and for Jonathan preaching. Wasn't it great to have those young men in the pulpit? Didn't they do awesome? Yep. Uh, I, I love... Uh, man, I wouldn't be where I wa- am today without uh, older men ahead of me being willing to give me a shot in that bat to grow in the gifts that God had for me. So I'm excited anytime those guys get up. And uh, my heart was encouraged. I trust your heart was encouraged as well. Um, so thanks to them. Uh, Luke chapter 7, as I said, let me open it up with you here. This is a very unique passage. It's a little bit of a complex passage. Uh, last week you saw when Addison showed us here the, the story of John the Baptist sending messengers to deal with uh, his own misunderstanding of who Jesus was at the time. He had to send people to, to Jesus to go, Jesus, are you, life is not going the way I thought it was going to go. I thought I was faithful. I thought I was doing God's will. I thought I was supposed to be the one who was introducing the Messiah to the nation, but now I'm experiencing some consequences for faithfulness to God. And I've got to send some of my disciples over to Jesus to go, Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who we're putting all of our hope in Or do we need to look for another? And that was a a very subjective experience. You ever misunderstand God? Ever been there? I don't know what God is doing. It doesn't feel like God's doing a lot in my life. It doesn't feel like my faithfulness is being rewarded with understanding, peace, clarity. It doesn't feel like I'm getting those things. Jesus, what is going on? And that text, those few verses that Addison led us through were incredibly instructive for us in our hearts as we deal in our own lives with our own misunderstandings, our own temptations to doubt, the ways in which we fight for clarity in our relationship with God to understand, God, what are you doing at this moment in life? But So if that uh, is you, if you're in that spot and you didn't hear last week, go back and listen to last week. This week is going to be different. This week is all objective. Because sooner or later, when you wrestle with uh, the temptations for doubt, when you wrestle with misunderstanding what God is doing, God is doing a a work in our hearts, right? When we deal with wrestling with God and, and understanding what God is doing and trying to grow in our appreciation for the lessons he's trying to teach us. But sooner or later, what you need in any season of doubt and misunderstanding is you need a word from the outside. I need a word from the outside. I need someone to define Where am I? What's happening? And what Jesus is going to do in this passage is going to move, the whole passage is going to pivot from John's personal subjective wrestling and experience to Jesus's objective assessment of both John and the generation in which John and Jesus minister. So it's an incredibly important. If you have a Bible that has red letters in it, anybody got that? You proud, this passage is primarily red letter, isn't it? Except for just two verses right in the middle where Luke decides to put himself and his thoughts and ideas in. It's a joke. This whole passage is about what Jesus thinks. You ever wonder what Jesus thinks? Ever wonder what Jesus thinks about your life? Ever wonder what Jesus thinks about the culture? Ever wonder about what's most important to Jesus? Ever wonder if Jesus has an opinion on who you are and where you are and are you being faithful and are you not? Does Jesus care that his church and our experience might find opposition in the culture in which we live? All of that is here in Luke 7, verses 24 to 35. Now, Luke hasn't been explicit as explicit about this as Matthew has. Matthew, these past few chapters in Luke are really toward the middle of Matthew. They're really in about Matthew chapter 11. In fact, the story of the man with the withered hand that we saw back in, I think, chapter 6 was one of the final inciting moments, really the fulcrum in the book of Matthew, where Jesus' entire ministry changes from preaching about who he is to then operating in parables because Jesus' ministry is set, is, it faces an accusation. They say, we can't believe that you're the Messiah. You must be doing these miracles through the power of Satan. And Jesus says, no more. 
Everything that goes forward from Matthew 13 on becomes parables. Now in Luke, Luke has only hinted at the opposition up to this point. We saw it at the end of Luke uh, chapter 6 about verse 11 where it says the the Pharisees went out and, and filled with fury, discussed what they might do to Jesus. So we saw that flash of opposition. But by the time we reach this story, chronologically at this point in Luke, the the sides are set. The opposition is serious. That by the time we hit Luke 9, Jesus is going to turn and head to Jerusalem knowing exactly what awaits him. But before we get to that, Jesus is going to give you a clarity. He's going to blow away all the fog of John's subjective experience and the struggles that people are having and tell you exactly what he thinks about John, exactly what he thinks about the plan of God, and exactly what he thinks about this generation. So Jesus, let me warn you going into this passage, this is not kind, gentle, sweet Jesus holding the lamb. This is Jesus being absolutely direct. You like Jesus cutting it straight. This is Jesus cutting it straight in this passage. Okay? Let's pray and ask God for his grace. God, for these few minutes, as we look into your word, as we hear the very words of Christ on the page, I pray that your word would speak to our hearts, that we would be challenged and confronted with the objective clarity that Jesus brings to our lives. For those in this room who are still considering who Jesus is and what he Uh, What he has done, I pray that as a result of our time in this passage here this morning, that they would have no doubts whatsoever, that they would hear clearly the truth of the ministry of John the Baptist, the ministry of Jesus Christ, and the necessity of responding in repentance and faith. So, Father, we pause and ask for your grace to do things that I cannot do in my own strength. We ask that your word would be made clear to us and that your spirit would minister to our hearts here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, we're going to pick up almost mid-sentence in Luke's story and account. It's going to start there in verse 24. You see 24? Look at Luke Luke 7, 24. When John's messengers had gone, and that's that's the moment where it seems Jesus talks to these messengers, and it says last week, in that very hour he healed In that very hour, there were miracles done. And it seems Jesus gives the disciples of John a front row seat to what it looks like for the Messiah to make broken things whole. And they go back to John, witnesses of Jesus' miraculous power. But as they leave, now Jesus is going to turn and talk to the crowds. He's not going to have a a one-on-one conversation. He's going to have a corporate conversation with all of those who are listening, all of those who have just experienced the very things that John's disciples have. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the evidence of Jesus and his Messiahship. So, this is how the text begins. When John's messengers has gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And this is going to control all the way down to about verse 31. But it's going to be Jesus' assessment of John's ministry. John has left, and we've dealt with John's misunderstanding about Jesus when Jesus tells John's disciples, blessed is he who isn't offended by me. But now we're going to talk to the crowds and talk to the crowds about who John is. So let's see how Jesus leads us through. This text is filled with questions that Jesus presumes have answers, that the crowd ought to be wrestling with the ministry of John the Baptist. Here's the first one. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Now the reason Jesus uses this illustration is that many people came out, maybe 40 or 50 miles to see the ministry of John the Baptist. If you know, if you've been with us in the book of Luke, you know that John the Baptist appears in the wilderness, that the word of God comes to John in the wilderness, preaching a baptism for the repentance and the forgiveness of sins. John doesn't do ministry in the city centers. He's not in the city town square. He's not in the religious establishment in the temple. He's way out far away, and some people have traveled 40, maybe 50 miles to see this individual. So when all of these people flock out and drive out, and whatever you drive with a camel, if you get ahead out there, they head out into the wilderness, and they see John. Jesus asks them, well, why are you out there? And the image of a reed in the wind is an image of flexibility, isn't it? A reed functions and maintains its health and life not by being rigid, but by being flexible. 
so that a reed is consistently pushed in the wind. And Jesus asks a rhetorical question as if to say, did you out go out into the wilderness to see a man with no convictions? Did you go out into the wilderness to listen to this guy who had no backbone? Did you go out and listen to somebody who just flexed with the winds in his culture all day? Did he flex with what the religious leaders thought and the political leaders thought? Is that who you went out to see? Well, of course not. Was John a man with courage? You have to have courage to confront the tax collectors in their day to say don't collect more than you need to. Remember how specific John's preaching was? He told the soldiers, be content with what you have. He confronts Herod of saying you are in a marriage that is not sanctioned by God. And here's Jesus pushing the assessment of the crowd to say you didn't go out and listen to a man with no courage. You didn't go out and listen to a man with no spiritual convictions about what is right and what is wrong. John didn't sway with the winds of culture. You went out to see someone who was convinced, someone who was called, someone who was filled with the Holy Spirit and was able to preach in such a way that he addressed the sins of his day, particularly, not just generally. So, I don't know what you think about people who preach. I don't know if you think they're generally, you know, they wear sweater vests and have are sweet but I think when I think about people who are ministers and people who are pastors and people who are ministry leaders I, very, I don't know how quick I would come to conviction and courage would that be at the top of your list and Jesus presses it on the crowds to say you didn't go out to see someone who had nothing to say who affirmed all of your ideas remember how John begins his preaching you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You think John was a loud talker? Do you think he had any heat in the things that he said? Do you think he had opinions that ran counter-cultural to the ways people lived in his day and time? I think so. And I think that's the point that Jesus is bringing up, that this is a man of conviction and courage. He's not flaky. He's not spineless. He cut the truth straight. So he begins with the convictions of, of John. Look at verse 25. Here's another question. What then did you go out to see? So Jesus is making sure that he highlights the inner convictions of the crowds. He highlights their motivations. Now, you might have gone out to see the spectacle that is John the Baptist, but you certainly didn't go out to see someone who was wishy-washy. Verse 25, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. That word for splendid is a word that means high honor. So if you went out into the wilderness and into the desert, you don't expect to find kings who are dressed in splendid clothing. That word is used to describe the church over in Ephesians chapter 5, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or blemish or any such thing. It's the picture of absolute regal purity and royalty. Fine linen, fine silk, the finest clothes that you could imagine. So what is Jesus doing? He's making a point to say that he's not, we aren't going out to see John who fits into our cultural categories. Can you think about those who exist in a king's court? Yeah, I can have them in my mind. Can you think about people who are wishy-washy and don't stand on principle? Yeah, I can think about those people. I have people who come to mind. But Jesus makes the point that John is distinct. In his day and in his time, he was distinct in his convictions. He was distinct in his courage. He was distinct in his calling. He was unique. He was socially unique. Amen? He was geographically unique, right? He was in a weird place. He was culinarily unique. Eating bugs and honey. And Jesus said everything down to his clothes was distinct and unique and different. He might have been a spectacle, 
But when you went out to see him, you went out to see somebody who was fully committed to what God had to say. What do you think the thread count is on camel fur? It's like six. You know that? He, had, he wore camel fur, bugs, tea, bugs in his teeth and honey, and you know, I don't think he got a haircut ever. So Jesus keeps pressing. Why did you go out to see him? Why did you go out to see him? You didn't go out to see him because he's flaky. You didn't go out to see him because he's wishy-washy. You didn't go out to see him because he looked good, smelled good. Verse 26. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you and more than a prophet. Now, remember last week that John is wrestling with the identity of Jesus. Amen? Remember that? Jesus, I don't understand who you are. I don't understand what you're doing. You're not fitting my expectations. Let me tell you that as Jesus turns and begins to assess the ministry of John the Baptist, Jesus is under no element where he is confused about who John is. Now, I say that because I just say that to prepare you for all of what Jesus is about to say because would you agree that Jesus' assessment of John is an important one? I think it is, right? So that the crowds in Jesus' day need to know, well, who is John? We were even confused when we asked to see John. We asked, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? We don't know who you are. You're preaching with your hair on fire, but we're not exactly sure what category to put you in. But what Jesus is going to do is give you objective, verifiable clarity about who John was and therefore absolute clarity about who Jesus is. Because both of their ministries are locked tight together. Let me show you how he does it. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. Look at verse 27. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Now, this is a, you have a cross-reference there? You have Malachi chapter 3? If you don't write down Malachi chapter 3, that's what Jesus quotes. So as bizarre as John might be in his day and time, as uncertain as people might be about who John is, as offended as people might be about John's preaching, that he's so direct, he's so loud, he's so confrontational, he's so weird, he's so different, he talks different, confronts different. He's, we can't categorize him. What Jesus does is bind the identity of John the Baptist to a 400-year-old prophecy. Do you see that? He says, this is him. He's the fulfillment of what Malachi said 400 years ago. So when Jesus does that, would you agree with me? Just go with me here. Would you agree that it doesn't matter what the crowds say? Would you agree that it doesn't really matter if John's misunderstood? It really doesn't matter if people think he's royalty, people think he's a bozo, people think he's a prophet or not. Until he has the validation of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, with his Bible open, who says this is who John is, his identity really don't matter. Because his identity is clarified by Jesus Christ. This is him. Now, this is what Luke said. You don't need to turn there. This is Luke 1, verse 16. Uh, when the angel Gabriel talks to Zechariah, he says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. When Zechariah's tongue gets loose later on in Luke chapter 1, here's what Zechariah says. This is Luke 1, You child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. How is John's ministry defined by Jesus? It's defined according not just to what Jesus says about him, but it's defined by what the word of God says about him. Now, that matters. Hang on. Look at verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Could you get a better verse than what Jesus said right there? You should fall out of your chair at that verse. You're, Jesus, hang on. You're telling me that guy with a little bitty ministry, wearing a leather belt, camel fur, eating bugs and honey, outside of the religious centers of the day, 
who was not necessarily popular. He left no written account of his writings. He had an obscure preaching ministry for a relatively short amount of time. Jesus, you're telling me that's the greatest person born up to this point? Greater than David? Greater than Abraham? Greater than Isaiah? Greater than Jeremiah? Greater than Samson? Greater than Moses and Aaron? Greater than Adam? That statement is stunning. You didn't just go out to see a prophet. You went out to see somebody that was prophesied by the word of God who arrived on the scene, filled with the spirit from his uh, conception, and who was totally faithful to the plans and purposes of God in his generation, who ministered for a short amount of time. And I'm telling you, crowds, you went out to hear from the greatest person ever born up to this point. Could you get a better letter of reference from Jesus? I'd like a letter of recommendation. Got it. Greatest born ever. You think you'd get the job with that one? Here's what Jesus says about me. I'm the greatest born among women up to this time. Now, what Jesus does here at this point is pivot, and he gives you kind of a weird statement that follows up in the middle of verse 28. You see what it is? Yet... The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, that's weird. Up to this point in the story of the Bible, John the Baptist is the greatest prophet ever. Greater than any of the Old Testament prophets because he lives and ministers at the fulcrum of human history, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ. He lives at the pivot point of all of what human history and the entire, in fact, the whole entire Old Testament was building up to. But John still belonged to the Old Testament um, time period. He didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and the remainder of the New Testament epistles, does he? He comes on the scene filled with the Spirit, compelled by the Word of God in the wilderness to preach, compelled in such a way to preach that he knows that Christ isn't going to be revealed until his ministry happens. But then Jesus shows us that the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Well, greater how? You're telling me somebody today who just came to faith in Jesus Christ is greater in Jesus' estimation than John the Baptist. How? How does that work? What, what is Jesus trying to show us here? Well, I think what Jesus is trying to do here is to show us that John is the greatest of that time period up to his point, right? Everything in your Old Testament anticipates the coming of the Messiah, right? Every prophet, every historical story from Genesis 3 all the way to Malachi 4 and even now into Luke, into the Gospels, anticipates the coming of Jesus Christ. So as you move in your Old Testament toward the peak of God's revelation, the Word made flesh in Jesus Christ, here's John right at the pivot, right at the peak where Jesus is on the scene. But John's perspective is still limited. He doesn't have full understanding like you and I have full understanding. You ever read uh, in the Bible that's a, great, that's a great setup for whatever I'm going to say next. <laughs> Do you ever read something in the Bible and you go, how did they not get it? I mean, if I was around when there was manna and a cloud of burning fire at night, I would have believed and I think that impulse that we all have when we read the Bible has to do really with the era to which we belong. We belong in the era of consummation. We belong in the era where we have the spirit of God residing in us, the reality of Jesus' person, work, death, burial, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of God, where we understand and see things that John did not see and understand. 
He couldn't put it together. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 13. When Jesus in Matthew 12 starts to talk about using the parables to both harden and soften his hearers, he says this to the disciples in Matthew 13. He says, for truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Here's what Hebrews 1 says, long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. Here's what Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The whole New Testament lets us know that the previous time period under the Old Testament was preparatory and wouldn't make sense without the coming of Christ and the revelation that is given to us in the New Testament. So why is the New Testament saint greater than John? Because he has greater understanding. You know what you carry with you, Christians? You carry the message in you that isn't a message of anticipation. An Old Testament believer will be saying, there's coming someone someday who has the ability to take all of our sins away. And until then, we're going to sacrifice these animals and we're going to put hope in the grace and the mercy of God because this is the system that he has given us. New Testament Christians don't have that. New Testament Christians say he is here. Your sins can be forgiven today, that you can be reconciled to God today, that you can experience the mercy and grace of God today. Why? Because Jesus has come. He's been revealed. He forgives sins. Amen? That's why we're, we're in and new era. That's what Jesus says. You're the least in where? In the kingdom of God. In the revelation now, the full revelation of what God is doing in Jesus Christ. So, this is why I think commentators get tied up about the personal subjective experience of John the Baptist. They go, why didn't he get it? He had the spirit and he didn't understand and now he's in prison and he's not, he shouldn't be doubting, he shouldn't have understanding. But the problem is that John didn't have full revelation, did he? He didn't know the whole story. He didn't know what you know about Jesus Christ. So we look back into John's experience and we go, why didn't John get it? Why didn't he just trust the Lord? John, stiff upper lip. He is who he says he is. But I love what Luke does for us here. We began last week with John's subjective, personal experience about Jesus. Jesus is hard to understand. I've misunderstood what I thought he was going to do. I thought he was going to do this, and now he's doing this, and this is a lot different than I thought. Jesus, I don't understand. Jesus, can you help me just increase my faith to understand who you are and what you're doing at this time? And now as John's disciples leave, what you have here is something that John and his disciples don't get, but you and I get. And the crowds in Jesus' day get. Why doesn't Jesus give this message to the disciples? You know what, did you wonder that? Why wouldn't he go, ho, 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 hold on. I got to remind John that he really is the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3. I got to remind John that he really is being used by God in this season of life. I got to remind John of all of these truths that I know about John and his ministry. But he doesn't do that. He does that for the crowds. See, every Christian lives between, you know this, I know this, between the subjective experience that we have every day in our lives. And we're trying to make sense of our lives. We're trying to understand how does Jesus fit in this situation? Am I saying the right things or doing the right things? I'm trying to believe Jesus, trust Jesus, know Jesus, grow in Jesus' name. Trying to read his word, apply it to my life. But is your life foggy like mine's foggy? No, it's just me? Okay. I thought that'd help. I thought we'd connect right there. That would have been the spot. We would have even been like, yeah, amen, Steve. I see you. I hear you, Steve. It's just me. But we all live in the subjective experience that we have in our day and time. And we live with promise and hope that Jesus is who he says he is. And that one day we'll see him face to face. Right? 
So between our subjective experience and the objective reality that we all see one day, we all live in this place. And John has now been called to have a ministry at this time and place for these few years and is going to wrestle with the fact that Jesus has called him to it. And in many ways, our life is just like John's life, isn't it? We all wrestle to know, I know there are things that are true about my life and who Jesus has called me to be and the obedience I'm called to put forth, but I'm doing it kind of on faith, aren't you? We don't walk by sight, but by faith. We walk by faith. Which means we're putting our hope in Jesus' evaluation of our lives at a later time. Amen? I don't get validation every single day. I don't have angels sing when I get up in the morning and make my first cup of coffee for my wife. Where they go, way to be a servant of the Lord. Do you get that? Say no. No, you don't get that either. You walk by faith. You walk by the revelation that God has given us about Jesus and who he is, and we walk by faith. But there's coming a day when Jesus will look at every single step of faith, every single willing decision that you make to be faithful to him, and Jesus himself will acknowledge, assess, and applaud your life. You believe that? Maybe you haven't thought about that before. Turn with me real quick. Just let's get out of Luke, give you a break, feel like you're sleepy. It's okay. Peter is going to be the thing that really grabs your heart today, I believe it. Amen? Peter. Here we go. First Peter. Look at first Peter chapter one. Verse three. First Peter one verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed when? In the last times. In this, you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Anybody have various trials in the life of faith with Jesus Christ? Yeah, raise them high, you six people, you other 400 liars. You've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, what was John getting tested in? His faith. Put your trust in Jesus, who he is and what he is doing. You might not understand it. You might experience consequences you don't like. But God is working down at the level of your faith convictions to grow you into the man or woman that God wants you to be. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, watch this, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you know what you're putting your hope in? You aren't putting your hope in everybody agreeing with you and applauding your Christian life here. You know that? Let's just put that to the side. I'd like that now. But I don't get that now. When do I get it? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. And commentators are mostly, uh, they all say the same thing about this passage. It's not some sort of benign corporate recognition. It's that Jesus Christ himself will stand up and applaud and evaluate and say, I see you. You took a stand for me in your day. You took a stand in your parenting and in your principled faithfulness at work. You took a stand for sexual purity in your relationships. You held fast to who I am. You put faith in my person. You had hope that I would forgive your sins. And when you stand before Jesus Christ, you receive praise, honor, and glory from Jesus Christ himself. You ever feel like you're overlooked? You ever feel like nobody sees what is happening? You ever feel like you're misunderstood for the decisions you are making in your workplace? There is coming a day where every act of faith, where you say, God, I don't understand, but I see your word and what you've promised for me here, and I will hold fast to it. And one day, Jesus himself will give you praise, honor, and glory. And pretty good?
Isn't that pretty good? What's the point in the ministry of John the Baptist? John doesn't get it, but you know when he gets it? When he sees Jesus face to face on the other side. What does he get? Here, Jesus gives us absolute, he gives the crowds absolute clarity about John's ministry. This man is the fulfillment of the, whole, of the word of God given through Malachi. This man is the forerunner. You went out to see a man, not who was flaky. You went out to see a man with conviction. You went out to see a prophet and more than a prophet. You didn't go out to see a king. You went out to see somebody who was totally distinct and committed to my way of life. And now I'm going to validate every step of faith that that man took. He will not be forgotten because I see him and I know him. Now come back to Luke. Every Christian is waiting for this day. Amen? Every Christian is waiting for the day where ultimately Jesus blows away the fog of uncertainty and misunderstanding and the ups and downs and the roller coasters of our emotions and he gives absolute clarity to your life. So we are putting our hope in what Jesus thinks about who we are as husbands, fathers, wives, friends, mothers, all those things, right? That's what we're putting our hope in. So who controls your emotional well-being? Whose praise are you living for? What ambition is in your heart where you would say, if only they saw me, I would be validated? What opinion controls the decisions you are making in life? Whose thoughts about you are the most important thing when you go, I don't know what people think. I don't know what they have to say. There's lots of opinions out there, but I want to live in such a way where Jesus Christ is pleased. So this is what Jesus gives you. I mean, it sure feels like, remember how Luke starts? Luke starts with the, the story of Caesar Augustus, the greatest Roman emperor ever. I mean, he's got a Wikipedia page now. And he says, you mean the guy with the bugs and the teeth and the camel fur and the belt and the yelling in the desert, he's the greatest, not Caesar Augustus? Doesn't it feel like you assess people a little bit differently than Jesus does? I feel that, and I'll read this. So here's what Jesus does next. Pretty good, right? You understand? Jesus' assessment of John the Baptist's ministry. He's exactly what God wanted him to be. He was totally faithful to what God wanted him to do. Because his life was grounded in faithfulness to the word of God. See, that's what I want to hear at the end of my life. I want to hear the well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? Isn't that what we want? And in our day, and in our time, I guarantee you what Jesus is looking for is people who have the courage to do what he says in his word and to be faithful no matter what it costs them. Because there's coming a day where he will recognize that kind of faithfulness. Now, Jesus is going to turn and he's going to talk to the crowds. But before he does, Luke is going to give us his assessment of John and his ministry. And it shows up in verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declare God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, of John. Which means when they declare God is just and they hear John, Jesus, I'm sorry, when they hear Jesus affirm John's ministry, they all go, yes, that's right. I believe in John's ministry. I got baptized, which is what the remainder of the verse says. You see that? They declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. They took John's word. They said, I am a sinner. I am not holy. God is holy. I am not. I need to repent of the sins that I have committed. And as evidence of my repentance, I'm going to get baptized with the baptism of John. But, verse 30, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Why does Luke put that in there? He puts it in there for two reasons, because Jesus has just validated the ministry of John, which means if Jesus validates the ministry of John, Jesus validates the baptism of John as the appropriate response to the ministry of John. Luke wants us to know that the teaching and preaching of John is just like you'll see the preaching and teaching of Jesus, is that it's divisive. There's only two responses to the preaching and teaching of John. Repentance, rejection. There's no third way. Because one forces you to wrestle with the fact that you are a sinner, broken, rebellious against God and his word and his rule, and the other maintains the integrity that is so important to us and refuses to admit that John is from God. It's a devastating consequence. 
There's only two options. And Luke lets us know, not only through Jesus' words, that John's ministry is valid. Luke lets us know that John's ministry demands a response. Now, as we get back into what Jesus says here, take a look. Verse 31. Jesus asked a lot of questions of the crowds that he was talking to, right? What'd you go out to see? What'd you go out to see? What'd you go out to see? Now Jesus is going to be just as clear about the generation in which John ministers. Look at verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? Let me give you an illustration, crowd, as to what you are like. Don't you brace yourself when Jesus says that? Gosh, I hope it's a good illustration. But already we know there's division in the crowd. Well, the way the Greek works in Luke's phrase there is that there are people in the crowd who have already made up their mind about John. And that's who people, who Jesus is talking to. What do I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? Look at verse 32. They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. So let me, the marketplace is a place typically it's kind of like the town square where the children would flock and the children would come and when it wasn't full and busy, the kids would play. Now I have six kids. We have, kid, we have six kids in our yard. It always looks like a VBS at our house. It always does. So we have an inevitable magnetism to our yard. Also because we have no fence and we're on a corner lot, everybody can see everything we do. So. It's, it looks like, uh, I've never been there, but it looks like the fair at our house. <clears throat> and inevitably, kids end up in our yard, and we have conversations, and we watch our kids play. And as a parent, you're on, like, con, like constant, nonstop, like, hostage negotiation, conflict resolution skills. That's the, is, is that true? Is there a phase of life beyond hostage rescue and conflict negotiation? Am I oldest or 12? Can you please tell me, God in heaven, that there's a new phase that we hit as parenting? My four-year-old is 12. So it's like we have... Anyway. This was good. I was going to say something really spirit-filled. Yes. So inevitably, you're dealing with children who have different opinions. Some kids are loud. Some kids are soft. Some kids go along. Some kids have strong personalities. Other kids have stronger personalities. And some kids are just intractable. Complete. So they're basically from strong to totally obstinate, right, is where the kids live. Well, Jesus is painting a picture of kids who are playing. And the kids, as they play, decide to go, hey, do you want to play basketball? No, I don't want to play basketball. Okay, you don't like basketball? How about art? No, I don't want to play art either. Okay, uh, do you want to play dress up? No, I don't like dress up either. And Jesus paints these pictures of kids who are playing a song, and they expect everybody to play along with the tune that they're playing. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We played a party song. We have dance parties from time to time in my house. We play all sorts of 90s hip-hop. Clean hip-hop, guys. <laughs> in Jesus' name around here, let's go. We played, the, we played the song with the beat, and you didn't dance. Okay, you don't want to play the dancing song. How about the funeral song? We don't have a lot of funeral parties in my house, but we sang a dirge, and you didn't weep. What's your problem? And you know this if you have kids or have had kids or no kids or have been around kids, that inevitably it is so hard to get a five-year-old out of the funk of stubbornness. Because you can talk to them and you can go, how about one of the 100 animal toys that you have up here? Wouldn't you like to play that? No. How about we throw the ball around? No. Go to bed. <laughs> but you know the stubbornness of a child who doesn't want to play. And Jesus said the generation is like people who have lots of demands that others live up to their standards, that others do what they say. Look at how he explains it in 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he's got a demon. This is the only spot where we know what the culture thinks about John at this point. That both John and Jesus are accused of being possessed by demons. Why? Because he came and he was different. We don't like the ascetic who doesn't eat any bread and doesn't drink any wine and only eats bugs and yells at us in the desert. We're not a fan of that ministry methodology. Okay, well, how about Jesus? Verse 34, the son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, 
a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I'd like, I'd like gentle, welcoming, forgiving Jesus. How about that? Mm, no, I don't like that Jesus either. So what is Jesus showing us about this culture in which gospel ministry, the plan of God to rescue sinners is happening? How is it happening? Where is it happening? It's happening with people who are childish and stubborn. It doesn't matter what John does. It doesn't matter what Jesus says. They're filled with a stubbornness in their heart because they think John ought to play by their rules. They think Jesus ought to play by their rules. You ever have that, that rise up in your heart? What, Jesus, you ought to be doing my life way different. And Jesus says, here's a whole generation that are childish and stubborn and you, you can't please them. They want to be in charge of the music. They want to tell people what to do. But they don't want to listen to God. Let me tell you why this matters. The form of ministry makes zero difference. That's what this says. You could be John the ascetic, totally committed to faithfulness to God in the desert, eat, not eating, not drinking whatsoever. You could be Jesus Christ on earth, welcoming sinners into your home, eating and drinking and refusing to fast. It doesn't matter the form. It has to do with the plan of God to save sinners. Why? Because the gospel message is very clear. You're a sinner broken in your relationship with God. I don't care if somebody shouts it to you from the desert or whispers it to you across a dinner table. Your relationship with God is broken and needs to be fixed. You are not as holy as you think you are. You are in need of repentance and reconciliation and forgiveness and God's grace and mercy poured out through the gift of faith. That's what you are in need of. Let me tell you why this matters for the church. If I thought building Ferris wheels and dunk tanks worked to affect people's eternal salvation, you know what I'd do? I'd increase our Ferris wheel and dunk tank budget. I'd grow my hair out. I'd wear a turtleneck. Turtlenecks. Ah! Jared, do we think that picking just the right five songs is the pivot point where people are going to get saved, and if we don't pick the right five songs, nobody gets saved? What? No. Because we're not into ministry for it to be creative. The point that Jesus is trying to make is the clarity with which the biblical message ought to be preached. Sinners in need of a Savior need to be reconciled through Jesus Christ. Give me a better message. Now, I'm not for, you know saying we're not going to be creative, we do all we can to help people, you know, find parking spots and know where the bathrooms are and make their way into the church and be friendly. We're not trying to create offenses. But when it comes to the word of God, my call is not to be biblically creative. My call is to be biblically clear. And Jesus warns us as this ministry that looks different in John's life and in Jesus' life comes to these people, these people are always going to find something wrong with it. You pray through how to share the gospel with somebody, you go, should I confront their sin or should I be gentle and merciful? Listen, it don't matter. Pick one. Don't get all worked up about it. They're going to misunderstand you. They're going to misunderstand the gospel. I can, you know how many reasons people could find to criticize me? Whoo! You know how many reasons people could find to criticize the church? You know how many reasons people could find to criticize you for not living up to the standards you say you believe? It don't matter. Let the gospel fly. Let them know they're out of step with a God in heaven who's provided his son to give them reconciliation, forgiveness of sins, and right standing for all eternity. There are going to be some who don't agree, some who are obstinate, some who are stubborn, but there are some. In the very last verse, there's a different set of kids. Verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What's that mean? It means that the ministry of John needs to be appropriately responded to by repentance and faith. In the, excuse me, in the same way that the ministry of Jesus needs to be responded to with repentance and faith. And if you are willing to confess that you are a sinner in need of a savior, 
that you have nothing in your hand to bring to God, that you are hopeless, then your response through repentance and faith is the wise one. So Jesus said the gospel message is going to divide. The gospel message divided in John's ministry. The gospel message divides in Jesus' ministry. And in our day, the gospel message is going to divide in our day. Amen? There'll be some people who agree, some people who don't. Some people who respond in repentance and faith, and some people who do all they can to find an excuse for admitting that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. But our hope is church. And this is, we got to keep this in front of ourselves. You got to keep this in front of you. I've got to keep this in front, of, in front of me as a Christian. Is that one day, Jesus will evaluate everything I thought, said, and did during my time on earth. One day, Jesus will look back on this season of life in Citadel Square's history. And will evaluate everything we thought, we said, and we did. And I want us, I want myself, I want your marriage, I want your kids, I want our lives together as a family of God as we journey together to hear well done and good and faithful servant on that day. Amen? That's our hope. So God, would you give us an ambition to obey you? Would we be reminded that one day we will stand before the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, and we will give an account for how we have lived in this life. And Father, may we, as Jesus asks later in his ministry, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Father, I pray that you would find faith in this church, that you would find men and women who have the courage to take a stand for the truth and the clarity of God's word, that you would find men and women here eager to share the gospel with their families and their friends and their neighbors and their classmates. And regardless of the opposition, the misunderstanding, the reticence that we might find in the hearts and minds of people that we talk to, we pray that we might be found faithful in our day and in our time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.